and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Typical Septic Podcast. gentlemen thank you for joining me for another episode of the typical skeptic podcast i have a beyond amazing guest for you guys today we're going to be talking about some really fascinating subjects uh dealing with time travel um inner inner earth um just really fascinating stuff i mean like the the title of this uh, things that are going on in transylvania that will blow your mind, basically. And it all starts with, with Montauk. And uh, let me explain to you more. Born and raised in California, I have with me Peter Moon. He's primarily known for his investigation of space-time projects, and particularly the Montauk Project, um, a series of mind control experiments that were conducted in Montauk Point, New York, during the 70s and early 80s that reported to re- result in full-scale experience of time travel. His work caught the attention of the control scientists Dr. David Anderson, who was on the doctor, if you guys don't remember, Dr. David Anderson was on the Art Bell show, and he actually was able to actually have proven results with time travel. That's why I'm so excited to have uh, Mr. Moon on my show, because you guys don't realize how big the stuff that him and Dr. David Anderson are doing. But anyway, uh, but at the time, at the Time Travel Research Center on Long Island, Dr. Anderson eventually brought Peter to Romania in 2008, where he investigated, paved the way for him to investigate other space-time projects, as discussed in his books, as the Transylvania series, one of which includes what has been called the most amazing archaeological artifact in the history of mankind, a chamber that contains a holographic record of the Earth's history as well as the holographic readouts, the human DNA, and other species. Peter's own journeys into Romania have become legendary. So <laughs> with all that said, Peter, thank you for coming on my show. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm very good. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you so much for doing this. I, you don't understand. This is I'm so interested in in learning about uh, all that you that you're that you know. And and I I listened to the interview with David Anderson on Art Bell. I'm a huge Art Bell fan. I listened to that interview that he was on. David Anderson was on Art Bell a couple times, and he the last time he was on there, he had like proven results and sending someone to the past with time travel i remember and it was like you know art was like flabbergasted because you know there were people who had come on our show with uh time travel before but nobody had ever had results you know and this man david anderson was claiming to have results that he actually sent someone in the past well let me ask you this how did you get introduced to dr david anderson and were, and then i guess were you always inter- inter- interested in time travel well uh, to, I guess we'll take it sequentially. <clears throat> was I always interested in time travel? <clears throat> Preston Nichols, uh, my co-author with the Montauk Project, who that book is based upon his experiences. Um, we had we were very different people, very different. Uh, however, we had one commonality. 
uh, our favorite TV show when we were kids. I was younger than he was. He was born seven years before me, um, or perhaps, uh, well, yeah, seven years. His, um, our favorite TV show was The Time Tunnel, which was at about 1965 or six or something like that. It was a, a it lasted for one season, and it was a fun show about time travel. Um, and so I was interested in it uh, from the, the perspective of uh, television. I did read the time, uh, what was it called, the time machine in high school. It was required reading for my science fiction class. Um, of course, time time is the great mystery. It's the great mystery. So uh, I never expected that there would be such meat uh, to the subject and to the story. Uh, and of course, Preston Nichols talked about it, uh, his experiences, but he told me as I began to write the book with him, he says, this stuff, I had a dream where I time traveled with him. And he says, this stuff is just a dream. You know, this is just a dream. And Duncan Cameron, the main uh, time traveler or psychic involved in the Montauk Project said, he says, we could do a lot of great things then, but we can't do them now. Uh, and of course, David Anderson, uh, he, the way he came into my life was I, he started subscribing to my newsletter, the Montauk Pulse uh, newsletter, which has been uh, in print since 1993. We just uh, issued a, a, new, uh, a new issue, uh, this, this, sol- this solstice. And uh, you can, people can get that. Go to the, my website, skybooksusa.com. They can also uh, visit the time travel education center.com. But uh, David Anderson, he had subscribed to my newsletter and he wrote with his check. He sent a letter saying who he was. For, and it was a very short letter with stationery that said uh, time travel research center with a PO box in Smithtown, Long Island. And when I saw the stationery, I didn't take it too seriously. I thought it was a kid who was interested in time travel that knew how to put stationery together. <laughs> uh, that's what I thought it was because I had all sorts of people writing to me. Little did you know it was David Anderson, right? Well, I knew it was David Anderson because he signed his name. But what was very curious to me when I read the letter was that uh, Al Bielik, when I actually met Al Bielik, wasn't the first time I saw him, but I, I drove him to Princeton uh, it was set up by Preston because he wanted to investigate some things in Princeton. And he told Al to share with me everything he knew about the Montauk story. And Al Bielik told me about the Anderson family. He said the Anderson family were key uh, people. Ge- genetically, they were the custodians of time. And that the, there were two, there was George Anderson who opened base to Preston Nichols so that he could retrieve all this equipment. Uh, George Anderson. There was also the Anderson twins uh, from Nutley, New Jersey, where Al Bielik lived, who overlooked him as he was an up-and-coming high school student and arranged for his uh, matriculation into technical school or whatever, whatever he was, because he was a technician and a good one. And then he told a crazy story that they had taken off from a spaceport in New Hampshire to go back to, uh, I think it was uh, Alpha Centauri. 
uh, and that was the uh, they were the the Anderson family were the custodians of time. Now that was a story that was very uh, strange. It made no sense except that it was part of the lore that Al had experienced. I do believe they were real characters. He said they ended up working in a uh, facility on Long Island called Airborne Instruments Laboratory, which was where Preston worked. Uh, it was that facility was heavily involved with the Montauk Project. So anyway, I Can I ask you a question. I, I, I don't want to interrupt you, ahead, but I, I, I want I want to for the for the audience that isn't familiar, was the Philadelphia experiment and the Montauk project the same thing? Was it no. basically the same thing? No, 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 no. They were two different projects. The Philadelphia experiment was 1943 when the Navy was uh, experimenting with radar, uh, attempting to make a uh, the ship. The Aldrich, right? They made yeah. the Aldrich. Uh, the Aldrich, attempting to make it appear invisible to radar. Yeah. This is the forerunner of today's stealth technology. And it actually did disappear. So uh, that was the, the Philadelphia experiment. The Montauk Project was the result of the research that followed in the wake of the Philadelphia experiment to make another project that would deal with time uh, and also dealt with radar. And that was in 19, climaxed in 1983. Uh, both projects took place in August, um, the August biorhythm, it's called, from August 10th to 14th during the month of August in 43 and 83. Those 20-year cycles from 43 to 63 to 83 being big uh, biorhythms that trace back to the origin of the galaxy, if not the universe itself. Now, that's a, that's a separate digression. However, uh, those are two different projects, to answer your question. Uh, they did connect up with each other. Um, That's what I thought. I just wanted the audience to know, because a lot of my audience might not be familiar when we talk about these terms. But like for people who don't know who Al Bielik was, he says he was the one who worked on the Philadelphia experiment. There's a video of him on YouTube talking about the types of extraterrestrials that were involved in the uh, Philadelphia experiment. And he's talking about a little gray and he talks about this one and that one. Did he did Al ever talk about that with you? Was that the different no. extraterrestrials were involved in the uh, the the Philadelphia experiment? There was a lot of talk about extraterrestrials, and I always tried or wanted Preston in particular because I worked more with Preston than Al. I talked to Al quite a bit, but to tone that stuff down because um, a lot of what they remember remember are screen memories, and there has been so much manipulation to the people who participated in these projects. And most of the people who think they're seeing aliens are not seeing aliens at all. Uh, they're what are they seeing? Like and 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 these this screen memory technology. This sounds really interesting, and this is a whole different path we could go down because it, it is a whole you know, different path. The abductions, the abductions deal with screen memories too. You know what it, I mean? Exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, when stories begin to defy common sense and logical explanation. Uh, you have to tone them down. You can accept them with a certain amount of uh, healthy skepticism. You don't deny the experience. Yeah. But you have to evaluate the experience. And so, uh, and of course, one of the problems with Preston is that he was set up or programmed so as to undermine his own credibility. 
uh, he had a lot of credibility in certain areas. And then he would say things that would invite him not to be believed. And it created a lot of problems. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, there, there are certainly lots of people who've told stories about aliens and Montauk is no exception. And Preston, yes, aliens, aliens, aliens. Well, but, not just uh, that, but Preston was also on Art Bell too. Art, one thing about Art Bell that people don't realize is that Art got to interview pretty much everybody who was ever something in, in the early stages of whatever this field is that we're all in right now, like the esoteric field. You know, he interviewed Bob Monroe. He interviewed John Keel. He interviewed Preston Nichols. He interviewed Al Bielik. You know, Art Bell talked to them all. You know, um, no, I have to correct you. He refused to interview me. He would have nothing to do with me. Why? Well, that's a very interesting story, but I think we're digressing from the main subject. He did interview Dr. Anderson uh, because I I offer a credibility that the government is very uncomfortable with. I don't claim to know everything, but I don't jump off the deep end. And Art was a shill for the government, most definitely. Uh, and that sucks for me to hear because I'm a big art fan. I'm a huge You know art what? Fan. You know what? Look, it, it, it's like uh, he played on people's interest and curiosity. But you have to understand, particularly in that day and age, when you're allowed free access to media, you have, he was big. He was huge. Oh, yeah. He did millions and millions of people listen yeah. to that show. And people have no idea how rich he was. But the thing is, when you're allowed to be that big and that powerful, at the same time, I can tell you stories of Preston and when he would be relaying stuff off of transmitters. Uh, this is when sh uh, shortwave transmitters not he, uh, that were relaying real conspiratorial information the government would blow up the transmitters. They weren't going to blow up our bell because he was doing what they wanted to within the bounds of it. If I was to get too big, I would have had too big of a voice. For example, in 1992, when the Montauk Project was released, we sold 3,000 books from May 92 to October. That's a lot of books to move. Yeah. And, and in, in 1992, I would have purchased advertising at 11 o'clock when either they had Cheers. I think Cheers was on at 11 o'clock in New York City. It was the most highly rated show. It was a time to get your audience that would buy these books. And it would have cost me uh, $5,000 to make a commercial and then more time to run it. Would it have paid for itself? Yes, but they never would have let me run it. I was smart enough to know that. They would never let me advertise the Montauk Project on TV, uh, even for a, like a minute or a half minute, because it was hot. It was selling. And uh, and then we, we sold 5,000 from that October of 92 to May or June of 80, 93. And when I, I said, okay, I ordered 10,000 books because I'd, I'd sold 8,000 in one year. So I ordered 10,000 books. And now, of course, I'm operating this time Sky Books out of my daughter's bedroom, okay? My daughter was like one or two, and we moved her, I think, in with my uh, wife's bedroom so she could be with her. Eventually, she was too young to go upstairs, but so we took her bedroom over because it was downstairs. It's a tiny bedroom, 
and I store books in there. So I'm going to get 10,000 books. They show up in a big truck. And as soon as they show up, this stealth bomber comes over my suburban neighborhood in Westbury. It was like 150 yards, 200 yards from me. And the truck driver saw it. Like, what are the odds of a stealth fighter coming over a suburban neighborhood? Uh, and it was sending me a message. That's what I felt. That's a, that's wow. a, it's like, so this stuff was hot potatoes then. Well, let me Black, ask you this, that Mr. Uh, Mr. Moon, like what, why, why do you think, what, what, what was going on with the Montauk project? I know what happened with, with uh, the Philadelphia experiment. Well, what happened in the Montauk project? I hear stuff about Nazis. I hear stuff about, I heard Preston Nichols' story, but I can't remember it that well. What exactly happened? And is it all right for us to talk about? Like, if I put it on YouTube, is it going to get taken? Oh, no, it's, 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 it's grandfathered into uh, what you would call suburban legend now because of the book. Um, but I would also tell you this. Uh, I copyrighted the Montauk Project when I published the book. Uh, when I started selling it on Amazon, you know, 25, 20 years later, Amazon challenged me after I'd been making sales and was accusing me of selling a public domain work, accusing me of selling a public domain work. And I showed them the copyright and they uh, relented. They, they backed off. They were trying to steal the rights from me. It wasn't Amazon per se. It was Al, uh, Art Bell's mentor or overseer and that was Dr. Michael Aquino, Colonel Michael Aquino. And who was he? Colonel Michael Aquino was the uh, founder of the Temple of Set. He branched off from the Church of Satan in San Francisco, formed the Temple of Set. He eventually became Nash, deputy national uh, deputy director of the National Security Agency, and he was uh, the main perpetrator and the main person accused. Uh, there was even. Uh, credible testimony against him for all this huge child molestation at that took place at the Presidio in San Francisco and also in his home in San Francisco. And he, uh, the National Security Agency or the, uh, the U.S. Army uh, refused to act upon his transgressions under the grounds of national security. This is no secret. There have been Articles written on it galore. Let me ask you this. Why do you say he was Art, Art's mentor? Because let me ask, because, because later on in 2015, I remember Art had Blanche Barton from the Church of Satan on the show, but acted like he really didn't know who she was. He may not have. Um, Art Bell, the Church of Satan was like nothing compared to the Temple of Set. The Temple of Set was, was a much more powerful See, the difference between Michael Aquino and Anton LaVey, who founded the Church of Satan. And I, by the way, I just had Carl Abrahamson on my show, who was a really nice guy. From the, I just, I wasn't able to post the episode because something happened. The I don't know problem. him. I don't know him. He, he writes books. He wrote a book on Antoine LaVey. He wasn't, he's, he's not really, uh, what did he say? Like, he's not like, I think he's a member, but he's not like in that, he's not in that LaVey, Blanche Barton circle. You know, he might be like a, close ally you know something like that I, 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 I really don't know him but um Anton LaVey was somebody who actually ran guns uh, to Israel so you know he was selling you know running guns but he was uh more 
into Satanism to exploit it and to take advantage of it. And also, uh, at the same time, tweaking the hypocrisy of typical Christians. There's a lot of hypocrisy in Christianity. So he was yeah. uh, tweaking that and, and being honest about his exploitation. Really, I don't know if he's that honest, but he was. Uh, but uh, Michael Aquino met him at the debut of Rosemary's Baby in San Francisco when he was, uh, uh, I think he was uh, about 20 years old and he was just about to join the military. And Aquino joined the military. And the, the difference between Aquino, who we, he joined the Church of Satan, but he thought that Anton LaVey was too uh, laissez-faire. And Michael Aquino had a much greater aptitude for darkness and evil, and he applied it. And he also applied it with sound and with magical, I guess what you call uh, in, in lay terms, enchantments to entrain people's minds. And he used this with sound. And this was a forerunner of the Montauk Project. Montauk Project was also involved with Satanism. Preston never wrote too much about it. He certainly commented on it. But the uh, anyway, he had under national security, he could do so much. He was very powerful he could influence media. He could control media. He's the basic author of Wikipedia. Uh, he could, like, you won't find anything on him on Wikipedia. Uh, he had my name taken off of Wikipedia and David Anderson's. Uh, it's, he was very, uh, and I learned that he was the main person putting the kibosh on me appearing. Uh, I could appear on radio shows. Most of Preston, it was mostly Preston Nichols in the beginning. As Preston began to fade away, I took a more prominent role uh, because I didn't have Preston anymore. And then I began to have become more into the spotlight with my association with David Anderson. But in those days, uh, so anyway, I could appear, we could appear on radio shows in Toledo, Ohio, uh, um, Kansas City, Missouri, uh, but if it came to big media centers like L.A., Chicago, no. Philadelphia, we were once going to have a TV show with Al Bielek, Duncan Cameron, and Preston Nichols. And when they found out what it was about, the anniversary of the Philadelphia experiment, uh, the, the 10th or 40th year, 50th year, 1993, they wanted to do it. And then they, when they found out what it was really about, they canceled it. Uh, wow. The same thing happened in Seattle. I met some people from TV at a book fair and they wanted to do it. And then when they, they started running advertisements for the show, people from the Philadelphia experiment, when the owners of Cairo TV in Seattle found out what it was and they were connected to the Mormon church, they put the kibosh on it. Well, let me ask you this. How in the Montauk project were they accessing people's minds? And would you say it was the Nazis working with our government to manipulate people's minds and were some hypnotizable and were some programmable? To clarify on the German question, the, the Americans did, of course, ingratiate many Germans with Project Paperclip. But what they were also using was the captured German documents, which included all of the empirical testing on human beings, predominant, I think predominantly Jewish human beings, uh, by Joseph Mengele which, and they 
and some of his genetic research and some of research that you haven't heard about. And they took that and they employed it with radar technology in the 1950s, where radar was much more advanced, where radar could influence people's minds and computer technology was up and coming then. And they could also integrate computer technology with radar technology and what and human behavior to, uh, applications. So that's what the Montauk Project was. And when you could actually begin to influence a person's mind, you could actually change their perception. You could change the perception of time. Now, you can change somebody's perception of time on a hallucinogenic drug. Is that what the Mandela effect is? Yeah, they're watching time change. But the difference here is you're projecting what's in their mental sphere and you're making it tangible by taking their thoughts and projecting them out of a radar transmitter. Um, And it's called a gain horn, which is attached to the big radar dish at Montauk. And it would emit at a frequency of approximately 435 megahertz, which was the window frequency to the human consciousness, which is the basic window frequency of the galaxy and assumably the universe. So this was uh, tapping into uh, the, I guess you'd say in Hindu terms, the original Maya, the illusionary aspects. People like to say reality is a hologram. They get very, they think it's a very sexy way to describe reality. It's all a hologram. Well, reality is an illusion, but it's a hard illusion. And it's an illusion that has a consistency to it. So if you ignore the, the illusion, you know, the baseball bat coming to hit you in the head is going to hit you in the head if you don't ignore it. So it's it's got a contextual continuity to it. So they were able to break that continuity. And when you break that continuity, you're able to break up time. Um, the book goes into some of the um, dynamics of that as best as Preston could offer at the time. It has to do with time references to the human consciousness. We're all referenced or locked into time. Uh, Just like, you know, you will see later today, it will be, you know, six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock and whatnot. So uh, you can't escape that consistency unless you change your mind. And, uh, you know, that's just a short overview of what they were doing at Montauk. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I was going to say, uh, and then and it seems like they, the the Montauk was started in the Cold War, and they were they were to get people with intuitive abilities to spy on the Russians, and then did that have to do with remote viewing as well? Well, they had uh, what they would call a full out, where they would get the person outside of the context of their body and perceiving things. Um, I think they called it the seeing eye, and it was. Uh, you know, a, a form of certainly remote viewing, which is a, a buzzword, which gets very overused and manipulated. But uh, yes, uh, they, they were doing that. That's that's interesting. Um, and then you and Preston Nichols did a lot to prove that the Montauk Project existed. And, and you, know, you already talked about how you guys brought it to the surface. So I, I guess we covered Montauk pretty well. Now, I wanted to talk more about Dr. Anderson he was actually able to slow down time and speed it up. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I can. But I just want, I will get back to, to, to I'm, I'm going to bridge to David Anderson. Uh, Preston Nichols and I did an investigation, and it's covered in the, the Silver Anniversary edition of the Montauk Project. Um, 
which actually I'm currently sold out of that book. It's at the website. I'll have it back. I should have more books in about a week. The, it can be ordered on Amazon, the Silver Anniversary Edition of the Montauk Project, which is different than the original one. But in that book, I explain how Preston and I investigate, investigated and we proved everything about the Montauk Project as far as it being a secret project. Um, they had to change the boundaries of, of where it exists. It was a, it, they claimed it was a state park. We've now made it a state park that's accessible to everyone where it wasn't before. Um, we proved every aspect of the Montauk Project except the time aspect because that was something we couldn't prove. Well, then Dr. David Anderson came into my life and he came into my life uh, not only by subscribing to my newsletter, but he uh, attended a meeting that we had. We used to have a monthly meeting on Long Island. It was called Montauk Night, once a month. And I think it was the first or second Wednesday of the month. And David walked into one of these uh, things and he introduced himself as a physicist. He didn't name himself. And he sat there and listened to Preston's lecture. And then he approached me afterwards in the anteroom of my friend's house, the basement of my friend's house where we had the meeting. And he told me he was a scientist. He said his name was Dr. David Anderson. And he had a time travel research center on Long Island. And then I knew immediately who he was because I remembered the letter. And I knew who he was. And after talking, listening to him talk for a few minutes, I knew he was for real. He wasn't uh, a high school kid with stationary. He was for real. And he said he would like to work with me. Uh, and he approached me, not Preston. And he wanted to know if we could meet uh, the following week, which we did. And he came to my house. He picked me up. He took me to lunch. We had a long talk. And he told me... Um, that he had just returned from Romania. He had just gotten back from Romania where he attended a conference called Atlanticron and that he would like me to go there someday and meet this woman, Mihaila, uh, who was very much into metaphysics. And she was a very substantial person. He'd like me to meet her. And then uh, he talked about a foundation that he was starting for Romanian artists, writers, and scientists. And he was, we had a long talk about tax laws in my driveway. He said goodbye. I would hear from him again. And uh, eventually he came to my house again. And in my kitchen, he created my first website, trying to help me. He really believed in what I was doing. And he also appreciated the fact that I was writing about things that people just weren't open to in his experience. And he, so I've had a relationship with him since 1998. That's 24 years now. And of course, he disappears and goes away and disappears and goes away. I have not seen him in person for 12 years now. Do you think he's I, traveling in time? I don't know. I know some of his time is very regular and real. He's been working a lot with ham radio and he's created a transceiver for ham radio. That's novel. It's a new thing. And he's using it to fund money for the world Genesis foundation, which he created a, a nonprofit organization in which he created. He's now no longer on the board. When he stepped off the board, 
I just happened to be attending a meeting because my girlfriend was a board member and I was in the room. Of course, this is all being done on Zoom. And he proposes me to be an honorary board member, whereupon uh, the uh, Rom- our Romanian counterpart who, who brought him to Romania and also arranged for me to come to Romania uh, insisted that I be a permanent member. So now I'm a member of that, that foundation, a board member of that nonprofit corporation. Uh, and I'll be returning to Romania this summer for the first time in three years because of COVID, I didn't go. Um, so David is behind the scenes. Um, I will be traveling with one of his closest confidants. Um, I can't say whether or not they have access to his time research because I don't know. Uh, they... Let me ask you this. There's something really big going on in Romania. There's like this holographic time cave with, you know, uh, I mean, like I can read, I can talk about the notes I have. It's, it's be beneath the Roman Sphinx here in the Bugeshi Mountains. Bucheg Mountains, Romanian, Romanian Sphinx in the Bucheg Mountains, spelled Bucegi in our language. We just call it Bucegi, but they say Bucheg. Yeah, and there's holographic te- technology. Like, what is all this that you guys found? It sounds amazing. Well, it, it's it's not really correct to say that we found, because um, it, it. I got very confused. Uh, David, see what had happened was, I got a request from a Romanian publisher. This is how it all happened. That was uh, Radu Roman- Cinema, right? No, 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 no. R- Radu is an author, not a publisher. Okay, sorry. Um. I got a uh, email from a Romanian uh, publisher. Actually, I don't know if he was a publisher or not, but it was a man named Sorin Hormuz. And Sorin Hormuz had, was working as an editor at a Romanian publishing house. And he was handed the Montauk Project book in English by his boss, who was the publisher, to read the book and tell him if he should publish it. Serene read the book, said to his boss, yes, you should publish it. The boss declined to, so Serene went out on his own. And he said, this is a good book. I'm going to start my own publishing house with it. He got the rights from me. The rights were not a lot of money because in Romania, you don't make a lot of money on books. But he started a publishing company on the Montauk Project, which has blossomed into this wonderful thing for him. He's a... He's done very well with it, and I'm very happy for him. But once he published the Montauk Project, it caught the eye of Radu Sinemar, which is not his real name, who had remarkable experiences with this Sphinx uh, area we're talking about. And he says, I have a story. Would you like to see my story? I'd like you to publish it. And Serene read it, and he published it. Uh, And whereupon, they translated it into English. They sent it to me. And it sat on my desk for four years. And I, I read it. I started it. I didn't finish it. After four years, and this was after uh, the Montauk Medicine Man introduced me to Qigong. Uh, once I started doing Qigong, which is an uh, Asian practice of breath work and higher consciousness, I, I then... Uh, had a friend visiting me and he I said look at well you well I'm busy you read this book tell me if I should publish it he says definitely so then I had time to read it while I was getting my car repaired by one of my fellow Qigong students 
And I said, okay. So I started negotiating with Serene Hermuz, and it took about four months to complete the negotiations. And as soon as we completed the negotiations and signed the contract, I got an email from David Anderson that said, um, I'd like you to come to Romania. This is in 2008. He says, um, all expenses will be paid for you and you can bring somebody else. I'd like to bring you to this camp and you can have a three-day uh, cultural tour of Romania. So this was exactly one within one week of when I'd last seen him physically. And he, it was five years to the week where he said, I will, won't be able to work with you for five years. So I thought there was a great connection between him and Radu Sinemar. But both of them have told me, no, there is not a great connection. Uh, David told me that somebody had told him that he's met Radu, but, and Radu says he would like to meet David. So to the best of my knowledge, they don't know each other. They haven't met. Uh, and so this only adds to the mystery. And then when I went to the Sphinx on that first trip, I went to the Romanian Sphinx and I asked a question in front of it because that's what you're supposed to do in front of the Sphinx is ask a question. And the question was, what is the connection between Radu Cinema and David Anderson? Well, after years, I realized the connection is myself uh, because I am the, the, the conduit between the two. Uh, and it's up to me to, uh, you know, kind of find that connection. So that, that answers your question. Now, so I went to Romania, but anyway, to get to your question of or, or what you're asking me to go to in, in uh, 2003, during the August of 2003, which is coincident with the biorhythm I was talking about, the 20-year biorhythm, uh, this chamber was open. It was already known about, but it was only open in August of 2003, where they discovered a tunnels that went below to a uh, room with technology that was ancient, but is more modern than anything we have because it would it was holographic technology so if you put your hand over one port of this table these tables were like six feet high um, for tall people if you put your hand over one section of the table which was like a square it would read out a holographic rendition of your dna what uh, are you yes. serious yes it would read it out holographically if you would take it, you put your hand closer, it would become more microscopic. You might see it at the first, the molecular level, then the atomic level, and perhaps even the quantum level. And I don't know, he didn't discuss that. And then there were other tables where if you put your hand over it, it would read out a life form. It would show a holographic rendition of a life form along with a, a planet and star system that this life form came from. If you put your hand over another one, wait. Can you give us examples? Like, what 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 life form did it show, and like what star system? Did I, it... I don't know if he described the particular life forms or the particular stars. But oh, okay. You, okay. Imagination. It might look halfway between a kangaroo and a wallaby, but okay. I don't. I don't know. You have to use your imagination. But I mean, all the life forms we have on on Earth are are abundant to fill your imagination with. But then, if he put his hand on another 
part of the table simultaneously, it would read out another life form and another planet, but in between the two would be a hybridization of that life form. So if you had an ostrich and a giraffe, you would then see an os- you know, a giraffe with wings on it uh, or something like that. Um, and, and and they- let me ask you this. Is, is this like accessible to the public or is this closed off? It's not accessible to the public. It's, it's, I didn't think so, because like this would be like major news, right? It would be. It would be. And of course, in Romania, the book is set up so as to be dismissed as science fiction. It's not okay. necessarily it's not necessarily labeled as science fiction, but people treat it as science fiction. So it's non-threatening in that aspect. And uh, there are people like I, I know people in the Romanian government who have told me that Radu Sinemar is a legitimate character in the Romanian government. And, and, and that it's, you know, so it doesn't necessarily, they believe everything he writes or they don't disbelieve it, but he's a real character. How about uh, this? I wasn't even familiar that there was a Romanian Sphinx. Like I, I interviewed someone on the Bosnian pyramids. I'm aware that there's pyramids all over the world, you know, and, you know, Dr. Samos Manajic, he's a nice guy who found a Bosnian pyramids. I was nice enough. He was nice enough to let me interview him. So I, I'm familiar with ancient relics all over the world, but I wasn't familiar that there was a Sphinx in Romania. That's, that's, that's new news to me. Like, what does that look like? What, what is, well, there, there are pictures of it and you can put up a picture, you know, you're going to put up a picture on the, the you can find them easy. It's you look up Romanian Sphinx on, uh, on Google images, you'll find it. It's well, not hard. This. Do you think it, it traces it back to Egyptians? Do you think those cultures might've merged at some point? Well, I can tell you a little bit about that, but first off, I would say that Edgar Cayce, uh, the great clairvoyant said that there were four Sphinxes uh, and that, there was a hall of records beneath the one in Egypt. Well, the hall of records beneath the one in Romania is clearly uh, superior. There are also, uh, there were, oh, there's also one of the books, Mystery of Egypt, talks about a similar uh, hall of records underneath Giza Plateau. But yes, it's, it's, this was not known. It's like it trumps so much of what Edgar Cayce talked about uh, it doesn't show him up. It just adds so much more to the ball game, so to speak. Now, uh, what did you ask me about? Uh, oh, we were uh, talking about if the Romanian culture and the Egyptian culture yes, ever merged. Yes. Well, there is some of the gold in Egypt is traceable to Romanian gold. But see, go- Romania, Transylvania in particular, which is a part of Romania, is houses the richest gold deposit in the world of pure gold. This is not a secret. This is a geological known fact. And gold is a transmitter of consciousness, just like yeah. it's, it's a superior transmitter of electricity. It's also uh, makes your brain work faster and quicker. So the, these gold, uh, the Romans took 200 tons of gold from Transylvania, invaded it, and they barely scratched the surface. This gold, but there's ancient traditions that go back. The patron god of Romania and Transylvania in particular, which was where the sacred uh, religious capital was, Sarmasigetusa, 
was named Zalmoxis. And Zalmoxis was a, by tradition, was a human who transformed into a god. And he, the religion of Zalmoxis, there's some 300 books on it in Romanian, but on him, on Zalmoxis. But he was, his religion, which is much more ancient than Egypt, became the founding threads of what became the Egyptian religion, the Zoroastrian religion, Judaism, and Christianity. So it's a foundational culture. It's a foundational religion. Uh, the Romanian language is the mother language of all of the Romance languages. That's why it's called Romance languages. Although they say it's Latin, it's misconstrued because vulgar Latin is basically the same or not different from the Romanian tongue. <laughs> Romanian classical uh, Latin is a educated language. Nobody spoke. They spoke vulgar Latin, which is akin to the Romanian tongue. But that's why, and, and this is the ancient Thracian culture and proto-Thracian culture, which that's also- That's close to Greece, right? That's close to Greece in Rome. Well, well, let's see, Greece, above Greece is, if you go to the east, is Bulgaria. And above Bulgaria, at the top of Bulgaria, is the Danube River. And above the Danube River is Romania. And then when you get to the the Carpathians, above the Carpathians is Transylvania. And Transylvania was pocketed from the Ice Age. So you could survive in Transylvania during the Ice Age. So what cultures could survive? They they went to Transylvania to survive uh, because you could still grow crops there. It was protected from the Ice Age. And to the degree that you couldn't protect the weather, you could go underground into the caves where they had running water. It's 55 degrees and you could survive uh, if, if it got cold during the winters. So Transylvania is the cradle culture of uh, basically uh, Eastern, uh, Western and Eastern Europe and well into Asia. Tibet similarly survived. And I think there's some areas in Africa that survived as well, although I'm not too up on Africa. Well, you know, it's so interesting, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I I got excited because you said Thracian, and that made me think of Spartacus because Spartacus was a Thracian. So that that was like... Excuse me, Spartacus is way after the Thracian culture. I mean, they would have their roots to Thracian culture, yes, but Thracians were pre-Greek, way pre-Greek. And... Well, I thought, but the Spartacus, the Spartacus was a Thracian, though. Uh, well, see, I think there's an area in Greece called Thrace. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, it's okay. named after uh, the Thracian culture, which you know was up into uh, Bulgaria. And there's tunnels going all the way down from Romania to Bulgaria. And there's also the Proto-Thracians, which came pre that. And so this is a very ancient part. And history has not only ignored this, it's conspired to hide it uh, because there's a subject called protochronism. Protochronism is a word they made up to uh, saying this is a civilization which has a complex about being first. And the Romanians can show you that their culture was before all these other cultures. And they call it a complex. The Romanian language and the, and the script was changed to make people think it all originated from Latin and it was all from Latin, retired Latin uh, Roman soldiers. Uh, They originally wrote in um, the, uh, what's that, Cyrillic script, 
and then it was changed to the Latin script, the Latin alphabet. They originally wrote in Cyrillic, and uh, the language was changed to make it less than it, different than it was. This was all conspired by Freemasonry, and it's all historically factual, uh, but nobody talks about it. But but that's that's just one piece of the pie because it's there's so much spectacular things. So so to get back to the story of this incredible holographic technology, there was and this is in the book Transylvanian Sunrise. And there's there's Transylvanian Moonrise too, right? That's correct. Yes, that's the sequel. And I changed the titles because the titles were too non understandable in English. Um, They're also a little rugged in Romanian. So Transylvanian Sunrise is is a basically they talk about uh, this in addition to these holographic tables there is a projection hall where you can go and look into a viewer of of technology you're you're subject to this technology in a screen or a holographic screen I would say where you can see the history of the world in holographic form and the history of the world you will see is bioresonant with you so if you saw uh, history of the world, and I saw history of the world, it would be tailored to our own personal prejudices, interests, and orientations. So, you know, your ancestors might have come from a different place than mine, so I might be more interested in that genetically, and it might just be out of curiosity. So, uh, Radu saw this, and he was witness to this, he was allowed to see it, uh, and then within that projection hall, there were three tunnels, which go into tunnels into the inner earth. One goes into inner earth and civilizations. That's called, it's in the, the fifth book of the series called Inside the Earth, the second tunnel. The first tunnel is called Mystery of Egypt, the first tunnel. And the third book, or the eighth, seventh book is called The Etheric Crystal, the third tunnel. So there's these three tunnels that go into similar places and installations like this. One is in Egypt, one is in Baghdad, which has an extension into Tibet that they don't go into. It's not ready to be told. And there's one that goes into a civilization in the inside of the earth. That book is perhaps the most spectacular of them all, Inside the Earth, the Second Tunnel. Um, and what are they saying is going on inside the earth? Like, what, do, what, what are they, I mean, like, if you don't mind me asking, I know we don't have a lot of time, but I just want to ask you, like, what are they proposing saying is, I mean, because I know I've heard Admiral Byrd's story and supposedly some guy was supposed to fly down inside the inner earth with a helicopter. He was going to go to the North Pole, but he never did it. Um, you know, I, I hear stories all the time, but like of inner earth, but like this was one of the most more, provable or more your story is more provable can you talk about it a little bit i will i will give the best i can in a in a the the short amount of time uh that we have Uh, but basically this book um uh the inside the earth talks about there being a black hole we can call it a black sun inside the earth and inside of all celestial bodies and this is where they originate from and it it gives a theory of how what emerges first is something that's like water and it it 
although he doesn't specifically reference it, it makes the German or Nazi fire and ice theory make a lot more sense. I've actually seen people say the Nazis were involved in all the pseudoscience of fire and ice. If I've actually seen Romanian renditions of it, I can't reproduce them, of going into detail of what fire and ice meant. It's not the simplistic fire and ice. The Nazis think fire and ice is uh, what started the whole universe. Uh, There's detailed explanations. This book does not reference the, the Nazi fire and ice, but it goes into saying how there is an origin of life in all celestial bodies that comes from the inside out. And as you, and he also gives a very good scientific refutation of this idea of molten core at the inside of the earth and how all the scientific assumptions of that are just assumptions and they're not scientific at all. This is in the book and it's, it's very well, uh, it's, it all, they all base it on something called the Cavendish experiment. And while the Cavendish experiment, it doesn't account for all factors. So we're dealing with a very slim margin of reality here where there's, you don't see the cracks in reality. So he explains the cracks, but what it comes down into the inside of the earth. Now I'm going to go from the top in. Uh, when you go down into the into these cracks and into the actual inner earth, where there are civilizations living inside the earth that live with different sources of heat, different sources of food, they are just as physical as you or I, but they're very different. They're the, the fauna and flora is more limited than we have on the surface world. But as you go into deeper regions, the vibrational frequency is different. And you're no longer in the earth plane as we know it. You're, going, you're changing vibrational frequency. And he wow. says, with Admiral Byrd, Admiral Byrd, and all of these stories you've heard, whether they be from the North Pole or the South Pole or the Bermuda Triangle, what happens is when somebody like that, they they begin to experience a different vibrational frequency and they're now no longer in on the surface world. And they're, they go in and they go out and they come back with these fantabulous stories. If they come out, they don't necessarily come out and it has to be tuned to that vibrational frequency. Now is as Radu has experienced all of this equipment and technology that he's exposed to, and it builds up over a period of years. He was gone for like at least five or six years before he came out with this Inside the Earth book. His publisher was distressed. He says, I haven't heard from Radu. I'd meet with him in Romania, my, my publisher, and he says, I, I haven't heard from him. I'm concerned. Then he surfaces with this whole incredible new book because he'd been you know, traveling to the inner earth. And this is over a period of years. It doesn't just happen. And he's being primed. His vibrational frequency is becoming more attuned to the inner earth. So he has different adventures with different people inside the earth who he meets, who are aligned with his consciousness uh, for the moment. And they're sort of like guides and mentors. And then uh, it's a slow process of being able to tune, to tune to it. At, At one point he's introduced to Shambhala, the fabled city of Shambhala, but he's not allowed to go there. He just sees it. He gets a glimmer of it. 
Uh, and then he gets a closer view of the city next to it. He goes to the city near it and sees it again. But this is uh, some part of his evolution. At least a couple of characters, at least two and probably three, have visited Shambhala, but they don't talk about it. This is like, if, if and it says that the fables that we've heard about Shambhala are all true. And the name is resonant. The name has been preserved by consciousness and that we could say uh, my experience in dealing with these books is they are a message from Shambhala to the outer world saying, hey, this is enlightenment and these books lay a template of where humanity can go. But where humanity can go, where it may go where it will go is a whole different question and it involves geopolitics and that's a whole nother show uh which we, yeah. we can do, we can do if you want mm-hmm. uh, but uh the yes yeah, so, so that's that's uh this is like utterly incredible and fantastic yeah and, can i ask you this though real quick did, did he did he say what kind of beings these are are they human or are they like uh alien or what, what, a mix of the alien human or what like well, it, it depends which book you read because there's different characters. He does talk about aliens in the book Forgotten Genesis, um, which, of course, they're sentient creatures. The ones in the inner earth, um, some of them escaped from the surface world in ancient Romania, and they settled below the earth. Uh, and there are different types of beings. There are different types, but I mean, you know, where, where do you draw the line between human and creature? And they're certainly human-like. Uh, yeah. Sentient creatures, are they, uh, they're different. Uh, but they're, I guess what you'd say, they're more highly evolved. And that they're not into all of this fighting. They're not having arguments about Roe versus Wade or Black Lives Matter or guns or any of the issues we're having today they're not they're not fighting human issues or even nuclear war like you know like they don't have like thousands of nuclear missiles pointed at each other like exactly strike at any second you know exactly that's that's not where their their consciousness is this is you know that's that's what's going on in the surface world and if the surface world were to blow itself up you know the inner earth will just keep on ticking and and recycle and well, let me ask you this do you think there are entry points like and is one if one can tune their consciousness to an acceptable frequency that would align to the inner earth do you think one could merge with inner earth and are there entry points to the inner earth? well de- definitely and and it's the question is you know how how good are you if you you could do it right from your living room if you were good enough but there are certain portals he talks about one is in yosemite one is in uh I think it's uh, Patagonia in Argentina. Uh, one is in there's different places. One's in Yosemite right here in the United States, though. Yeah, in an Indian reservation in Yosemite, he goes there. Radu goes there. Uh, wow, yeah. that's so awesome! Like that's this is so this this blew me away. This was one of the best podcasts I've done in a while. Like I, <laughs> this was amazing. Like. I don't think I have any other questions. Like, well, I would, I would invite people to read the books, Transylvanian Sunrise, 
um, skybooksusa.com. They're also available on Amazon and Kindle and uh, on iBooks or even Barnes and Noble. Uh, Transylvania Sunrise was, is the one you want to start with. Um, and, and if you want to go straight to Inside the Earth, because I've been addressing that, that's a great book. I do summarize the, the other books at the beginning, but it's best to start at the beginning. Transylvania and they can also Sunrise. get the Montauk Project book there as well? Well, yeah, the, the Montauk Project Silver Anniversary Edition is sold out, and I should get it in next week, I hope. And I will, when I do, I do have all the books. They're not on sale currently. I have a special offer for, God, it's about 12 books at, at about maybe a little more than half price. And that special offer number five, but it's down right now. And it's down right now because I ran out of Montauk Project Silver Anniversary Editions. I've ordered more. And so I would hope, and I, and I take the offer down because I'm not going to be, we're not going to be selling books that we don't have. So we'll put the offer back up no later than probably the second week of July. And it'll be up for a couple of weeks. And then I will be away and Skybooks will close down uh, from, you know, the 28th, 20, 28th of July, because I will be back in Romania. So Skybooks will be closed for a couple of weeks, but uh I would invite people to skybooksusa.com, bookmark it. And you can also get these books direct from Amazon as well. They, they should have copies of them. However, they buy them from our distributors or whatnot, the people who sell them. We do not sell direct on Amazon. But if you want to buy it from Amazon or get it on Kindle, it's fine. Um, do it. And uh, you'll be entertained, informed, and enlightened. That's amazing. Well, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, doing another podcast with you in the future. It'll, it'll be a pleasure. All right. Thank you, Peter. Have a good night. Thank you.